0: Hi and welcome to History Respawned, I'm your host John Harney. Our game this episode is Civilization VI, ostensibly the sixth entry in one of the most famous video game series in the medium, which dates back to the first game's publication in 1991. Civilization VI has received strong reviews and much of the praise has focused on the depth and well-roundedness of the gameplay experience. For many reviewers the newest entry in the series is a classic Civ, matching the addictive one more turn gameplay with a faithful recreation of the series' central conceit, a civilization's journey from a lone settler plodding around grasslands to a superpower reaching for the stars. Joining me to talk about that journey is our guest, Tony Andrade, Professor of History at Emory University and the author of three books, the most recent of which is The Gunpowder Age, China, Military Innovation and the Rise of the West in World History, published this year by Princeton University Press. Tonio's work seeks to complicate and break down broad assumptions about global history, which made him a great guest to come and talk to us today about Civ. Tonio, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. We are really thrilled to have you. Um, I wanted to start with something nice and simple. This isn't your first Civ game, is it, Tonio? No,
1: no, it's not. I started with uh, Civ 3, and uh, and I got so addicted to it that... Um, I actually had to break the CD because that was a day when you had CDs. (laughs) Um, And I played, you know, the other ones in the meantime and and Civ Revolutions on the uh, iPad.
0: And on and on. I I did a little thing at the start of the episode about ostensibly the sixth game. There have been so many Civ games. Um, I think Civ 3 was the game. I was sitting in my apartment in Taipei and I looked up and it was 6 p.m. And I looked up again, what felt like moments later, and it was 1 a.m. And I realized I had a problem.
1: Yeah. That's interesting because I think that was when we first met in Taipei. It was around then and I That's was right. playing Civ. That was when I broke the CD. You see, if only we'd known that would have been yet another <laughs> connection.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said in the intro, Tonio, what really intrigues me, and you know, a lot of people bring this up all the time, how, how Civ talks about history, and we're definitely going to get into that, I think, in more depth. But just very broadly to start, what do you think about the series' relationship to history, how we tell history, whether it's in the classroom or you know in what pe- some people call public history, what you might call popular history, how we consume history? I know that in your work now, not only are you kind of, you're a global historian, but you, you really are reaching out to
1: broader audiences. Where, where does Civ come into those kind of dynamics? I mean, the thing about Civ is, I, and each iteration is slightly different, obviously, but they all have a basic... Uh, sort of meander your way through history, hopefully winning at the end. Right. Um, What I I think, I use it, I assign it actually as a text in my graduate um, colloquium on world history to kind of talk about how we model history, especially over the long term. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a bunch of assumptions in it, you know, that maybe aren't entirely realistic, but that's exactly the point. You know, I think any history that we write as historians, no matter how how many texts we look at and how careful we are, we're still making models and assumptions. And um, a video game is just a way to kind of inhabit a world of assumptions, almost a simulation that you enjoy being in. And then, you know, talking about those assumptions in relation to what we might consider to be reality or, (laughs) you know, the manifold phenomena of existence, the sources, whatever, right? is I think how we kind of understand history because we can never we can never completely grab, you know, the history itself. So we're always working with models. And this is just a sort of very tangible and kind of fun model. Although I have to say, not everyone finds it fun. Like some of my students, I found that in order to teach it appropriately, you have to actually give a few lessons. There's a bit of a barrier to entry. I think some of my students prefer, prefer reading, you know, difficult books. Uh, they prefer Pomerantz to Siv, you know. Yeah, well, that's fascinating. So, I, I, you know, I have given Siv, um,
0: I gave Siv 5 to some undergrads last year and just literally asked them to write, you know, play five or six hours and then kind of the theory five was... Five or six hours. I know, I know. Right. Well, those barriers to entry are there at all levels of education, you know, it's I true, think. Yeah. It's true. And with undergraduates, it's, um, they don't want to use that time to read complicated books for the most part, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, which is probably a good thing, I think, when you're young. Um, but this idea of, you know, you know, so which character do you have, that's another thing we get into, this idea of characters in Civ. But what you're saying I think feeds directly into something that um, our job as historians is to engage with this all the time, of course, but but people do complain that, that Civ adopts a Whig pattern of history or certainly kind of adopts this this worldview or this historical view that matches up with that Whig view. Um, I was hoping that you could share with our listeners and our viewers what does that mean? And in your own work, how do you interact with those kind of assumptions of this Whig or progressive history?
1: Yeah, so I was going to ask you, when you say Whig history, I mean that's that's talking about a kind of long view history, and, right. and I I'd be curious to know how you would how you would define that
0: well, I think that yeah, so you have the long durée and all all these kinds of ideas. I suppose for me, um at least in the conversations people have raised with me personally and I see brought up online um is this kind of progressive aspect, this almost enlightenment aspect, going back mm-hmm. to the Marquis de Condorcet, you know this idea that things are getting better and specifically things are getting better thanks to technological industrial innovation, which matches the way that it happened in the world today so mm-hmm. you know the conundrum as you and i both know for asianists for example and you just mentioned kenneth pomerans this question of you know the industrial revolution why does it happen where it does why does it not happen in other places and the difficulty i suppose we face in that structure right because even if you're right. critiquing, it, breaking away from it so I, w- I was kind of inviting you to kind of sh- talk about that a little bit
1: yeah so yeah exactly <laughs> so i think not, um, not a hard question at all, you know, it's it's <laughs> but it's that this question is I think at the heart of of not just of civ but of history in general that we have these meta narratives these large stories somewhat implicit maybe um more uh, maybe explicit sometimes that that kind of guide what we do because it's how we see the world going because history is not just about the past. Mm-hmm. You know, history is about the present reflecting on the past. And heading to the future, I think all all historians, exactly. even you know, we have one eye on the past and one eye on the future, um, and that's one of the interesting things about Civ too that that dynamic, that sort of progress dynamic. Civ doesn't stop with the present; Civ goes on into the future. <laughs> and yet, As you mentioned, you know, you can become a space traveling race and uh, you know try to establish your civilization on other worlds and things like this. Um, and so, but that view of history. It's not just in civilization in the in the games. It's in so much history that you see these days, and a lot of the debates. For example, I, I, it's funny that we this is the third time we're going to mention Kenneth Pomerantz, but I think it's a really in, intriguing um, sort of counterpoint. So Kenneth Pomerantz, his argument, and many other people are arguing similar things. His argument is that that the Whig interpretation doesn't work because, or at least it doesn't it doesn't work for yeah, it doesn't work at all, actually, because a lot of what caused Europe to diverge and industrialize and become advanced wasn't necessarily technology or science, you know, um, or even social structures, democracy, representative government, anything like that. Mm-hmm. That it was just uh, luck, basically. It was contingency. <laughs> right, in that the models that we see that kind of have this long-term progressive ideas uh, maybe are... Are missing something, which is the the key role of just random mm-hmm. processes and events and geographical constraints, or um, you know all sorts of different kind of <laughs> contingencies, um, which I think is really interesting. And, and because I think even though Civ does have this, you know, in order to progress in Civ, you have to research technologies, right? And each technology, um, and in the new Civ, there's they're not just I don't know if you'd even call them technologies. There's there's standard technologies like gunpowder, things like that. Mm-hmm. But there's also um, other types of things like- uh, civic, The policies and these yeah, things. Policies yeah, policies yeah. and yeah. things like that mm-hmm. that you can form governmental structures of different types and things like that. Right. Um, so it, you've got all of that. You've got this this progress idea, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, contingency plays a fairly important role. Right. I would say that it's that it's a role that kind of, starts at the beginning, really, if you have a favorable placement on the board, mm-hmm. um, your whole trajectory is much easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can tell this because just the the AI playing the other characters, um, some of them get very vast and become very good. Other ones stay quite weak. So, And it's right. uh, presumably the same AI. It would be very interesting. I'm, I've always wondered... Uh, I, I don't think there's a simulation mode I've looked for it but if you could just set up a world and just let it play and then do the same map and let it play again and right. see what happens um, what would happen but I, I feel like that kind of especially geographical um, I don't want to call it determinism um, because there's other random elements but that geographical favoring or whatever the the that kind of legacy that you get based on where you're set and the kind of resources that your civilization has at its disposal at the beginning and what, who, what the neighbors are, how close they are, how aggressive they are, et cetera, that can really determine so much of the game. Uh, later on
0: yeah indeed so i mean if you're if you can found your city without ever moving the settler to start the game because there's a river right there or you're near the sea and near some mineral deposits um there's a huge difference between that and roaming around for six turns which you know if you're going to try and translate the game into you know a history the story of history as it were um you kind of wandered around for like you know <laughs> for generations before kind of founding and suddenly <laughs> your your neighbor's egypt or a superpower sorry for you um I think it's been interesting, the newer game, in the sense that this we're kind of getting into this meta idea of the gameplay because Civ does have this reputation for that tech tree, right? This is your blueprint for getting from a bunch of, um, you know, barely clothed peoples on the on the plains to <laughs> the city on the hill, right? right. Um, and I, I feel that Civ 6 makes a real effort to break you out of that a little bit. Democracy is not demonstrably kind of the most obvious government type to go for. The, the penalties for communism, for example, are not perhaps as loaded as they were in the early 90s with the early games. Um, mm-hmm. And also things like city-states and, 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 and really trying to create this idea that you can persist because it's something that, in my experience, Tony, and I'd love to hear you talk about this as well, one of the interesting gameplay aspects of Civilization is it does kind of push you to conquer or, or you could push back against that too because does it push you to conquer? Is it the player base that likes to conquer? But it feels to me that since civilization 4 in particular there's been this effort by the developers for axis games to really kind of say hey you know you could be cultured and you could win yeah. you could be a religious entity you could win through sheer religious influence and that's it feels like a struggle they're they're, they're they've been going through for several games now
1: uh, that's interesting yeah i think in civ 3 the first iteration that i really knew conquering was pretty much the way to go you were definitely edged towards that and I think civil, Civilization Revolution, the, you know, the, I guess, more handheld and um, kind of stripped down version of Civ, same thing, uh, very much conquering is kind of the, yeah, the standard path. But yeah, I, I, as far as I can tell from Civilization Six, elements from Civ Four and Civ Five, like um, cultural victory and religion mm-hmm. and stuff, uh, religious victory, where you win by, having the most glorious culture on the one hand, or by converting, you know, other civilizations to your religion, um, those are, I think, much more kind of prominent in Civ Six. I don't have that many hours playing Civ Six yet, so I'm not sure how it really plays out, but I feel like you're right. Like, they're trying to push push that, push a, a non-conquering yeah. <laughs> uh, possibility. And what that, like, so one of the things about history that's, like, global history on the long term that is intriguing to me is how places that would appear to be marginal at a given point, can take on tremendous importance and significance later on. Um, so like Europe is a great example. So the rise of the West, these, mm-hmm. you know, after the Roman Empire, uh, the fall of the Roman Empire, Europe was, Western Europe at least, was very marginal in comparison to sort of the great um, civilizations and, and cities and everything going on in, in Asia, in the Indian Ocean world and in East Asia. Um, And yet, you know, sometime on or around or after 1500, depending, you know, (laughs) the dating is very uh, political almost, uh, these once marginal places came to just play this this central role so that by the 19th century, um, they were not just dominant, you know, militarily, but culturally and, and we all wear European clothing and, you know. You know, and that like that dynamic is very interesting to me. How how can you model this? Because if it was a cultural thing, right? Like like what what, co- what allows countries and civilizations, if you like to use the term, and a lot of global historians are uncomfortable with the term, sure, to um, to rise, mm-hmm. and and how do they come out of seeming marginality to <laughs> central dominance? Um it's it's just a really intriguing problem.
0: It's fascinating, yeah, I agree, and you know, for me in the classroom, so I teach an institution now that has a global history component, right um and even in the short time I've been a professional historian, which if if we if we're generous and give me for my first year in grad school is now about um ten or eleven years, I've kind of gone through this personal journey of kind of rolling my eyes at global history because you know i was i was so knowledgeable as a first year grad student you know learning <laughs> learning all about how these are you know silly things to kind of really seeing it as an opportunity to ask my students to try to challenge these things. And it's really hard to do. And even like you say, I find myself, there's such kind of a classic professorial thing to do, I suppose, but I'm jumping between civilization, community, uh, society, you know, just jumping from like word <laughs> to word to try and kind of create this sense of like, I don't really, I don't like any of the words. I'm going to use all of them uh, when talking about them. Um, but no, I agree this contingency idea. And like you said earlier, um, of course, and then the way that we recreate our histories. So, um you know, Europe rises up and then immediately takes control of history and says, Well, we were always the important people, like always. You mm. know <laughs> one uh, interesting question that I know uh, interests you is the classic one, and of course, is something that you know kind of is the inspires the title for your latest book, the idea of the Chinese uh, discovered gunpowder, but then, quote, unquote, like didn't do anything with it, right? Yeah, it's kind of very you know Western way. I mean, and I get asked this by students all the time, and so I'd love to ask you, Tony, oh, Hey, how come the Chinese invented gunpowder
1: but didn't didn't do anything with it? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, my book, The Gunpowder Age, available <laughs> at bookstores today, uh, talks about exactly this because I mean that you know it's first of all is the assumption is wrong, um, you know, and and it's not an assumption that's limited to the West. I mean in uh, the great writer, Lu Xin, the uh, famous Chinese writer of the early ni- uh, 1900s, uh, he had a famous essay in which he said the same thing. We Chinese invented gunpowder, but we didn't make great guns and how the Westerners then came. And so it's it's a trope. It was a trope anyway, this idea that you know they invented something so useful and didn't use it everywhere, like in East and West. But the fact is that right away, I mean, military, if you look at the sources and the sources for china in that period so we're talking 800s 900s um are fantastic Uh, you find evidence of military uses for gunpowder from the very beginning um or very close to the very beginning Um, so they began to use it for uh sort of conflagratives to to make burning arrows that burned better they um, attached it to animals and you know shoot them into the enemy um and then they started making uh, what they called fire lances, which just projected fire. So there was like, imagine lances, right? The, your standard pike sort of thing with people marching in the front, but instead of just sharp, you know, pointy things, they're shooting spies, you know, fire <laughs> like 20 feet ahead of you. Um, and then they started sticking things in those, so like little things to like hurt the people as it spewed out too. And then those gradually became a gun. But that whole process, that whole evolution um, from you know, very sort of gunpowder use as a very primitive kind of conflagrative to weapons that approximated modern guns and then to actual guns. Um, all that all happened in China over a few centuries and and the evolution was actually pretty rapid and you can kind of trace it. Um, mm-hmm. But then that, that doesn't end the question, of course, because it does seem that Europeans at some point got better at making and using mm-hmm. guns. Um, so when was that? And um, why? Yeah, we find ourselves then, you know, tackling...
0: Um, the other word whenever I write up contingency on a whiteboard for my students and the next word I tend to write is agency right and th- mm. there, are, there are a series of inventions in one community society I'll do it again I'll list all the words um, <laughs> <laughs> that that's see certain kinds of rifling technology emerge and everything you know I was playing Civ 6 this afternoon um, I've been travelling recently I wanted to re- kind of refresh my memory before we had this chat and I'm locked in a long and unfortunately and this still happens in the new Civ I really like the new Civ but it still happens a kind of a boring protracted War uh, Uh against the Greeks, and part of what happened is the Greeks discovered musketry um, just before (laughs) I did, and so I've got um, I've got crossbowmen and legions. I'm Rome uh, taking on musket men, and so it's just one of these classic seven anachronisms, you know, um, that translates into kind of a oh, this isn't fun, and kind of reinforces this idea of like I must get to that next technological step, and then I will be a quote unquote successful civilization. And that's
1: I think that's one of the kind of weaknesses of of the Civ franchise in general. Although I, I, I think that they're taking some steps to kind of ameliorate that, um, which is that if you have a very large empire, um, so you've got lots of cities and they're producing science production and you know gold production and stuff like that, you can sort of forge your way along that technological tree faster because you just have more resources. But what actually seems to happen in history as often as not is that small countries come up with innovations. Even the the invention of gunpowder, if you look at um, the invention of gunpowder and early guns and gunpowder weapons in China, this was a time that China was divided. And China, I mean, really, some people see this. So it's the Song Dynasty, right? Um, 960 to 1279. Um, and in the Song Dynasty, China was in some ways at its weakest, I mean, as a unified state, you know, there's times when China is just a bunch of states just fighting, right? But as a unified dynasty, it was at its weakest because it faced very powerful enemies uh, to the north, um, who actually at a certain point in 1127, you know, conquered the right. capital and the, they had to flee to the south, right? So, and and create a new state, the Southern Song. So, but it's this period when China is in fact smaller than in the Tang dynasty, which preceded it, and the, the Yuan and Ming dynasties that followed, that so much of technological innovation is happening. So I feel like that's one of the things that the that the Civ franchise is kind of gets wrong. Large states with a lot of resources don't necessarily innovate faster or better than small states um, that are maybe more nimble, um, and, and I find that really interesting. I think that also sort of answers the question of contingency. Um, it, it is definitely the case that I, I feel, and this is one of the arguments in the Gunpowder Age, when you with the book that I, you know, the, uh, my book, the Gunpowder Age, um, that that kind of helps to explain the patterns why Europe eventually became better, and then how the subsequent kind of technological race went. I guess you could say is that countries that have a lot of competition, other countries that they're fighting a lot, um, tend to innovate more rapidly militarily now you would i mean that's just pretty obvious but you can trace it and you can also trace it not just in the times when china was uh, not just in the song times, but there were other periods after that when china was also facing lots of enemies and it's those periods when you see a lot of military innovation and paradoxically i think you could what i what i argue in the book is that china's greatest triumphs so are the Qing Dynasty, which was founded in 1644, as you well know, but I'm saying it for our, <laughs> for our guests who might not, uh, which was founded in 1644, um, became China's most powerful dynasty. It controlled more territory than any previous dynasty, uh, more territory even than the People's Republic of China controls today. It overawed all of its neighbors, um, and, and it was during that period. Which at first was very militarily dynamic, which is how they expanded so much. It was during that period in the course of the second half of the 18th century and the early 19th century, when they were just huge, right, unparalleled in their hemisphere, and there were no external threats and not so many internal threats, that China fell behind. Um, so I really think that stimulus, so when so you fighting against your, you know, this stupid Greek musketeers, <laughs> after several fights of that, you should suddenly get musketry, I think. Right, yes. Which is, I think, uh, Europa Universalis and some of the other um, more, sim- you know, war-simulated games, they kind of work that way a little bit more. But I think, like, any contact with, with another, like, these because we have to remember these are individual... Uh, people fighting, you know, we're simulating individual soldiers. And if they're, you know, if these crossbow men see these musketeers just shooting into them, they're going to, hey, I'm grabbing this musket and I'm taking right. the pack. Yeah.
0: You know? I think that's something that's definitely something you can see the developers grappling with in Civ 6. You know, that you have mm-hmm. these little moments where, hey, you founded a city near the sea. Your, your progress towards, um, you know, navigation has increased. There's these little right. efforts to do it. But I'm intrigued you bring up... um other types of games particularly the paradox games of course Europe universalis and the like because those games have um for people who are not familiar they're very different stylistically from civilization um and and they really they're kind of sandboxy i suppose and i really learned to fall in love with crusader kings 2 in particular when i realized that i wasn't going to win i mean uh-huh. it was it was possible i could control all of europe by 1600 but it wasn't guaranteed and so my great moments from crusader kings 2 are going from a kind of a fallen dynasty that once once controlled the western half of what we now call france to suddenly controlling all of modern italy and north africa because i married my daughter to the right person and for some (laughs) bizarre reason they did these wonderful things you know that these other games can do but but they're different kinds of games from civ right and so i'm intrigued by civ's enormous success and and that one more turn kind of addictive kind of element to it and and I don't know that they're trying to do it, but if you go and you look at the opening cinematic to the game and the uplifting language of we're mm. always rising forward and better, and I think there's lots of reasons people find that seductive. But to what extent, extent is Civ hampered by its gameplay? You know, I mean, uh, how, how do they, like I said, you have city-states now that kind of persist for longer. It seems to be a little bit easier in this new Civ game to just kind of chill out and do your own thing. But uh, but that 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 DNA of the game does
1: seem to push you to to defeat others. Which yeah, you're so supposed you know, to win, in some right? Way. Yeah, you win and exactly. The yeah, the conditions are different. There is this idea of winning, which I mean, history hopefully is not about <laughs> just winning, right? Right. Yeah. No, exactly.
0: And this idea of, you know, how do you win and who wins and everything else. You even mentioned the Song Dynasty, you know, a few minutes ago, which was militarily weak. But, you know, gunpowder was one of many innovations during the Song, right? The the Song were quite economically complex and sophisticated, even the way they tried to handle their rivals by kind of buying them off with trade deals and all these kinds of interesting things. But the way that we typically look at history... And I'm, I'm using we very broadly, both for you, Tonio, and for people listening and watching. I mean, this is, you know, it's more complex yeah. than this. But um, I guess it gets us into this interesting question of how do we package history for broader audiences? How do we engage with broader audiences want out of history? Because I, I think that popular audiences must be respected. I mean, and I know you agree yes. with me here. I mean, this is the whole point of history to respond. Like, looking down one's nose at the pop public is... Is not, a, is not a good or clever thing to do. No. um. But how do we engage with these realities? And when you're engaging the broader public, do you feel, you know, is there a line between what you do as a quote-unquote historian at Emory University and what you're doing and going out and trying to talk to people? Is there a line between what this YouTube series is doing versus what I'm doing in the classroom?
1: I mean, first of all, we can't fool ourselves. Our, you know, my books sell well for academic books, but, you know, they're not bestsellers and the number of readers really is in the thousands um and so i think and and history respond i don't know how, what your numbers are but i think you're still reaching a probably pretty educated um you know and and informed and interested group right
0: so yeah it's it's an audience that's kind of looking for us and we're delighted to have them delighted to have you everybody um but you're right it's it's not the same we're not it's not the kind of audience that you're getting
1: for um, well, for Civilization Six, I mean, I think even Civilization Six. I think even that audience, though, you know, it's not for everyone, um, and they, they tend to be on the slightly geeky side, interested in in history, sort of writ large, sure. um, and video games. That's a compliment around here, by the way. You know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> One thing. So there's something else. I don't know if you're going to ask about this, but can I? Uh, Go back to the future question, because I think it really pertains to the deeper question of progress in history. So, a former colleague of mine, his name is Robert Strayer. He wrote a a world history textbook, and he's done some wonderful work. He's retired now, but his uh, he in his textbook he talks about the fact that history is not done, and Mm -hmm. how we like what happens after today is going to determine whether we think of what happened before as progress or not. And most notably, I mean, we are facing in the 21st century, like massive, like environmental issues that maybe will test civilization itself, you know, all human civilization, right? Uh, Most of the, the major centers of human population are on coastlines, which, you know, it seems like we're already exceeding the worst models in terms of um, sea ice melt and stuff like that. So petroleum, you know, the development of fossil fuels, these are all stages that lead to greater power in Civilization Six, right? Right. But it's not clear that it will you know a hundred years hence it will be looked back on as a net gain for humanity if we're all living in sort of scattered settlements clinging to mountainsides you know i don't know why who knows what's gonna (laughs) happen but you know history isn't done and i think even the future the way that the future i haven't i have to say in civ 6 i haven't yet gotten to i think i've the one time i'm still on one game and i've only gotten to the renaissance so i don't know how they do but the other civ franchise um games tend to have i think a like there was a little nod to global warming in, in mm-hmm. Civ 4, was it or Civ? 2? I don't remember. But it's just a little tiny bit of desertification, and and that's pretty much it.
0: Earlier Civs have done more of that than the new Civ. I was actually very surprised. There's no real pollution
1: mechanic yeah. in this
0: new Civ, and that's been something that's been in previous Civ games.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and pollution on the massive global scale, mm-hmm. you didn't even see in in earlier civs just a little bit of you know global warming just turned things into deserts a little bit but i mean the kinds of things that we're going to be facing as as humankind as human beings are they're going to be global that are going to affect everyone um and and by the same token one of the things that's really missing from civ if you want to think of it as modeling history are is disease i mean and global epidemics, I mean uh, in earlier sieves, sometimes your guys would die if they were too long in a kind of swampy area. that doesn't seem to be the case in the new ones um but but what about like epidemics as two whole new continents come into contact you know um shouldn't there be massive exchanges of you know viruses and and bacteria as there was in real history and yeah I, I mean those these, and these kind of things really they 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 are, I believe, among the most important factors in global history, and they're not in Civ.
0: Yeah, and it's a great question to to wonder to the extent to which, again, are these just mechanical ideas that, God, I'd love to have a pandemic, but I don't know how to fit it in. I don't know how to code it in yeah. without it making the game less fun. Or is it more, there's like a meta history here going on, right? Like the first Civ game comes out in 91, um, and I remember the early Civ games had lots of nods to recycling and stuff. And, huh. But if I think, of, I think of the early 90s, the mid-90s, I'm not stunned that you see a game series emerge shortly after the fall of the Berlin Wall that really celebrates this kind of everything is getting better type attitude. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so we enter this fascinating question of, well, are the later Civs hamstrung by that or tied to that, or is there room to grow? Um, is it something that comes out in an expansion perhaps? Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. like people always talk about, oh the vanilla sieves are no good you'd wait for expansions, I think this sieve at least is very very good um, yeah. but I wonder could there be an expansion that basically you know, <laughs> destroys the planet by twenty to
1: one hundred AD or whatever it's going to be. The problem, you know? I think this also relates to what you said about why it's so fun to play. It's fun to play because it's challenging, very challenging mm-hmm. um, and especially challenging to win but there's a certain calculability, a certain predictability. If I do this, this will happen. If I do that, that will happen. And I'll make my way along the trees step by step. Maybe someone else will beat me to X, but then maybe I can catch them at Y, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Global pandemics. Maybe I've done all this work, and now look, my civilization has half as many people. <laughs> maybe that happened right. to the neighboring civilization, but, uh, right. you know, these kind of random events um, can be very frustrating. Um, and so maybe partly it... it goes to your question of gameplay and yeah. and that there's just maybe no way to have well no I don't I think there there are ways to have very fun games to play in which yeah. you know half of your population gets wiped out by a meteorite or something you know whatever some, <laughs> some massive event
0: like in uh, the aforementioned Crusader Kings 2 where an important bishop dies of syphilis somehow you know that's not and that just that just messes everything up <laughs> and it just screws you up for, for a while you know yeah. um, no I, I think it's fascinating and Um, this idea, you know, again, those earlier saves, it really was get a guy, you know, I think it was get out to, um, uh, Alpha, I forget now. Alpha Centauri. That was it. Get yeah. Delphi Centauri. Of course, they had an Alpha Centauri title game and everything. Uh-huh. Um, and now things are slightly broader. You can become very culturally powerful. One of the things I really like about Civ Six, and I think is kind of hilarious, is that you could basically uh, build up seaside resorts at all your cities and just win that way. You By know, t-
1: kind of... attracting tourists. Yeah, I saw that. Yes, exactly. I don't exactly. how that
0: works exactly. But yeah, that's intriguing. Um, I can't say that I do either, but I I won with it somehow. Like it's one of the <laughs> it's a little it's a little bit like the religion um, meta game where I'm not entirely sure how it's supposed to work, but sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Um, yeah, I found myself marauding through the seaside resorts of 21st century Viking uh, society, <laughs> <laughs> which which brings me to another thing I'd I'd hate to end the conversation without talking about it. You know, we've talked about competition, we've oh. t- we've talked about um, you know end of history and everything else. Something Civ does, uh, which is very famous for doing, and it's part of its aesthetic is that you meet the Egyptians, this is Cleopatra, mm-hmm. right? Um, and the Americans are presented this, by, this time by Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah. Okay. Um, and they very deliberately, and I think to their credit, have tried to get away from China, America, to have, you know, the Vikings. Um, the Scythians are in this game. Um, and different kind of, you know, societies that we wouldn't see as, quote-unquote, great nations today, which is definitely to their credit. Mm. Um you and I know each other as Asianists. We met years ago in language class mm-hmm. in Shida University in Taipei. Um, but certainly something that really our whole field now has to think about is global history, transnational history, international history, world history, whatever we want to call it, right? Yeah. I feel like Civ kind of highlights some of those challenges you have, right, in trying to step from one to the other or how to explain how you feel one should be incorporated in the other. What, what do you think about the way Civ kind of sets up, essentially is built on confrontations between nations? And the way that it represents
1: those nations, it, like yeah, personifying the nations with these right, great individuals. exactly. Yeah, I, I mean, right. As a historian, I have to say that's silly. And as a matter of fact, the, <laughs> the idea of the unity of a civilization is kind of silly right. too. Can you really say that um, that France is the same thing as the Kingdom of Charlemagne? You know, or something? You know, or the Roman Empire was right? You know, that's different from the Venetian Republic, and. and the the idea of continuity for, you know, from prehistory all the way up to history that that in itself is a very sort of troublesome thing, um and you know but of course, so is the idea of, you know, some godlike creature with a mouse in his hand, you know, moving <laughs> people around on a board and making decisions that affect you know the right. virtual world, um, yeah I mean I think that the caricatures are funny, um wasn't there like a a glitch in an early Civ with Gandhi or something I think you had had said something about this in the first
0: Civ they had some they had a I think it was a binary rating or rating out of from 0 to 99 or 1 to 99 for how aggressive someone would be and um, I think they put in 0 for Gandhi or made a mistake in Gandhi's code so Gandhi (laughs) was a Gandhi was an absolute maniac bent on nuclear annihilation of the planet (laughs) one of these wonderful things that you know I'm so glad that happened. You know, <laughs> it's kind of this great, this great moment. in save in the new game. Um, um. Although Gandhi isn't uh, one note per se, they they do try and make Gandhi slightly um easier to deal with. What intrigues me is is the skill of the aesthetic in terms of they have these caricatures and they're they're more or less they're as as much as you can with such a dynamic. They're kind of getting away, I think, with the with the one note representations, or they're they're doing their best. Yeah. And the cartoonishness arguably helps them but um, yeah. yeah it's it's a ador- it's an enormous issue because it is what the game is you get to this interesting point with something like this which is going out to the public to lots of people i think there's a point where a civ player who loves civ and has played it for 20 years like i mean i'm one of these people would say oh this isn't civ think mean, that's an intriguing challenge do you know what i mean that the people making this game face i see what you're and saying yeah, for I us historians we can kind far. of sidestep a little bit yeah yeah so it's it's intriguing. And, and and Civ is really set up as this march towards the end of history. At least that's how it feels to me. Uh-huh. You know, like end game, this video game concept. And so it's kind of, um, I don't know, I, I'm intrigued to see perhaps what they'll continue to do with religion and culture. To what extent do those non-military victories give Civ that space to grow?
1: Certainly as an historian, I find it the most intriguing. Yeah. Well, I mean, if we, if we were to make a bullet point list of things that we would love to see in Civ 7... I think among them, I would like to see large global contingencies, viruses and bacteria and epidemics and things like that, climate change. And because it's not just the 21st century that is affected by climate change. I mean, climate change episodes have really affected history at many different times and created Mm -hmm. sort of bottlenecks and major changes. And, And they affected different parts of the world in different ways. So the Vikings, for example, were tremendous beneficiaries of the uh, medieval warm period, right? They colonized Mm -hmm. Greenland and went to the New World. And um, and when that ended, those settlements, you know, everything retracted and the settlements died away. Um. So it'd be nice to see that. But yeah, what would you add? What would you add to the list of? That's a, This is this is a great way to end it. This is fun. Um. You know what really
0: intrigued me about Civilization VI before it came out. Um. A lot of the preview stuff focused on how they're going to use the landscape, and so the way that this manifested itself in the game most directly is this use of districts. Yeah. Um, in the city dynamic, which is cool. I think it it gives you it gives you. The game doesn't explain this to you, but you'll do better if you specialize. So if you have like an industrial city and a cultural city and a religious city mm. and your smaller cities can do lots of different things. But if you if you especially early on, if you kind of specialize a little bit, at least in my experience, you'll kind of prosper. And I like that. It gives the city's personality. I have to be honest, I was kind of hoping for more of an integration between kind of, you know, the 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 construction and the science of man, man and women, of course. But, you know, man with the capital M and 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 the land and and in the game, you can discover natural um wonders and things like this i think I think they had grand ambitions for for a clear integration of humanity's technology humanity's existence, and the land that humanity occupies and this and of course the the world that humanity occupies so I, I I'm hopeful to see it coming um so I kind of go with you there to see something along those lines uh, whether it's global events or whether it's just even to be honest to be arguably less ambitious in my end just to see a return to oh you've become a very powerful coal chewing nation the coal is running out yes um yeah. or you have basically destroyed the western half of your country what do you do now um maybe for civ 8 there might be the transition from an industrial to a service economy or something like that <laughs> you know they're, they're, you know these are things that are on my mind and yeah. recently for some reason um <laughs> um and i'd be intrigued to see how civ does it i think that uh We've mentioned other games in this conversation. The paradox games—they have the virtue of being games where, um, you know, you're not going to quote-unquote win. Where Sib feels tied to that, to me, yeah, for better and for worse. Um, so, how they would get away from that, I, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I think they could, though. I think there's room in the, the the interface is so great, the idea is so great. I don't think that it would ruin the experience to have some of these other elements included. And by and for that token, like it. When you go back to fighting the Greeks after we get off, um, you know, I really feel like next time, you know, Sid Myers, if you're listening to this, three victories, like three defeats by a uh, technologically superior power, and you get some of that technology. It's just, it's just should be that way. And then, yeah, that would actually maybe decrease war because you wouldn't want to necessarily go to war with your people nearby they <laughs> and give them be, all your secrets. Yeah, they'd end up with yeah, yeah. tanks. Um, <laughs> but yeah.
0: Which is, you know, arguably what happened, um, yeah. you know, uh, with the uh, – it would be a terribly one interpretation of 1868 <laughs> in Japan leading to 1941, so I won't do that. I might edit that out. <laughs> but
1: challenge, I, response. No, a challenge response, challenge yeah. response. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, no, No. definitely. This idea – and this is something, again, for us as Asianists, I think is is – this idea, you know, the great Paul Cohen book, you know, Discovering History of China, where he kind of outlines all these discussions that were happening in the second half of the twentieth century. These are things that happened. The, the the reality that people decided the British have prospered doing X, we should do X as well, right. um, and that throws up a lot of conundrums. Then, yeah. uh, like you said, the the existing narratives in China that we invented gunpowder, but we didn't invent any weapons. Like you know, this was not you know they didn't they didn't learn that narrative from. From Westerners, you know, Mm -hmm. fascinating. Well, Tonio, thanks so much. I think that's a great place to leave it. Thank you, really glad to have had you. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Maybe have you back sometime in the future. And thanks everyone for listening and for watching. We hope you enjoyed it. You have been listening to the full length podcast now, so presumably you know where to find us. But if you have been directed this way by a friend or found us online, you can find uh, more episodes on iTunes and also at soundcloud.com. If you did like the podcast, please consider leaving some kind of a positive rating, especially on iTunes. We do hear that it helps the word get out. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.